Sermon number 597, The Significance of the Cross, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on Sunday, February 20, 1972. Text is taken from John, the 12th chapter, the 27th through the 36th verses. On this first Sunday of another Lent, hear the word of God as it is written in John, the twelfth chapter, beginning at the twenty-seventh verse. Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, do not let this hour come upon me, but that is why I came to go through this hour of suffering. O Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, I have brought glory to it, and I will do it again. The crowd standing there heard the voice and said, It thundered. Others said, An angel spoke to him. But Jesus said to them, It was not for my sake that this voice spoke, but for yours. Now is the time for the world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. In saying this, he indicated the kind of death he was going to suffer. The crowd answered back, Oh, our law, law tells us that the Messiah will live forever. How then can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be among you a little longer. Live your lives while you have the light, so the darkness will not come upon you, because the one who lives and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Believe in the light. Then, while you have it, so that you will be the people of light. You know, I don't think anyone who reads the story of Jesus can help but come to the forced conclusion that our Lord felt he could do something by his death on the cross which he could not achieve by simply living longer. Therefore, as we read the Gospels, we find him persistently and insistently facing towards Jerusalem and towards the cross of Calvary. And once you will remember that when our Lord was in Jerusalem, the last time he was to spend the Passover in that holy city, some Greeks came demanding to see Jesus. They had heard about this miracle worker, this young Galilean, this individual who spoke with a new authority, an individual who had a new teaching, one whom they wanted to get to know and evaluate for themselves. Sir, they said to the disciples, we would see Jesus. 
And Philip and Andrew took them with their requests to our Lord. But our Lord, instead of telling these Greek men about his life, his teachings, about his miracles, he chose instead to concentrate on the way he would soon die his death upon the cross. Apparently, our Lord felt that if any man is to see Jesus, to see him in all of his, his entirety and fullness and glory and power, it can be done only through the cross, the cross of our Lord. For that reason, the cross has always been central in the teaching of the Christian religion. That is why during this Lenten season we are concentrating on the cross. The cross, you see, is significant. It is significant because it is the sign to us and to all the world of God's salvation for us. God's salvation for us. The cross is that symbol that we have had for 2,000 years which decorates every Christian church in the world today and which stands as the sign to tell us somehow and in some way by what happened on that cross, Jesus Christ, God's Son, has saved us from our sin has justified our existence for living, has somehow made us again at one moment with God who has created us. Because of the cross, we can be again just as Adam was in the garden before he fell in sin. Now, exactly what happens on that cross, or what happened on that Friday in Jeru on that hillside outside of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago, we cannot fully understand, let alone explain. Men for 2,000 years have been trying with the use of simile and metaphor and different definitions. They have tried to explain in some way that men of this world and women of this world and young people of this world can understand what happened on that cross. According to Vincent Taylor, the great British theologian, who has really studied this subject, he claims that there are no less than four different explanations of what could have happened when Jesus died upon the cross for you and for me. We know Jesus brought us once again at one with God. And we have taken those three words or those three syllables and put the stress emphasis differently and we come up with what we call theories of the atonement, the atonement, And we know that there are at least 14 different theories 
explanations of what took place when Jesus died on the hill called Golgotha. Now, each one of these, during the 2,000 years, has really expanded. Naturally, we can imagine how theologians or groups of theologians continue to study and to rehearse and to redefine a particular different theory, each one of them using not only the basis of their theory, making it the scriptures, but also they tried to use similes and metaphors, thinking in the thought pattern of their particular day and trying to express the idea of what was done through the particular cultural system that was familiar to them in the hour in which they lived. Consequently, back in the first century, in Jewish circles where the gospel was first preached, the idea was set within the system of sacrifice. Any Bethel student knows that the Jew believed that light is in the blood and that there could be absolutely no forgiveness of sin without sacrifice that cost blood. The Jew knew through his experience of his Passover celebration and the Day of Atonement that the way God instructed people to get rid of their sin was to shed blood. First, of the animal. And then we find the writers of the Hebrews in the New Testament trying to put Jesus within this particular context. He is our great high priest, one without spot and blemish, instead of as the high priest used to once a year make atonement for the sin, Jesus Christ by his sacrifice on the cross has made restitution forever and ever and ever. He was seen, you see, as the one whose blood made complete the sacrifice which was due if man was ever to be reunited with God. Later on in the society of people, slavery was the system. It was prevalent throughout the ancient world, and people were bought and sold as slaves. In those particular days, Jesus was placed within the context of that system and he was thought of as the one who was the ransom for many. He paid our ransom so that we could be released from the bondage of sin. In the Middle Ages, it was the feudal system. In those days, petty kings and lords were always looking for some satisfaction were the slights that had so easily wounded their small pride. Jesus was then produced within that system and shown by preacher and teacher as being the one who has satisfied the hurt pride of God. Later, when the judicial system was really prevalent, and when the courts were great in their action, especially in England, where people were thrown into prison 
just because they owed a debt. And where people were crucified or where they were more or less murdered or killed in the sight of the state because of all sorts of petty crimes. They were executed. Well, at that particular time, Jesus was looked upon as being the one who has been substituted in our place, the place of people who really in the sight of God should die. He has paid our price. He has become our substitute. And because he has taken our place, he has taken the penalty upon him which rightfully belongs to man. Jesus was proclaimed and preached as in his cross, being the substitute for us. And for a thousand years we have had what is commonly called today the moral influence theory. That is the one that is pretty popular today, the idea being that the cross is a symbol of God's great love. That this love is so great, so marvelous, so free, so unmerited, that it can do nothing more really than when seen in its proper light, bring about a response from moral people. A response that requires us to change our life pattern when we realize that Christ has died for us. And like Isaac Watts, we say, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. His influence of what he has done for us just naturally makes us respond in gratitude, which changes our morality. And one that is very common today, and we're hearing more and more about it, because it's familiar to our particular cultural situation. And that is, to quote again the words of Paul, of Christ being a reconciler. Our president this very hour is on his way to China to serve as a reconciling agent between different opinions and ideologies counselors, pastors, labor negotiators, all of these are doing what has become quite familiar in our culture, that of trying to be a reconciling agent between two different polarities. So we say in trying to explain to people of this generation what God did in Jesus Christ on the cross. We say God was in Christ, reconciling, reconciling the world unto himself. Oh, we could go on and go on. I've mentioned only a few of them, but there are many explanations to try to explain in language that people could understand in the cultural patterns in which they live what it was that happened on the cross. But the important thing to remember, ladies and gentlemen, the significant thing is that during the 2,000 year history of the church, the church never once, never once, has defined and demanded a single 
official orthodox theory of the atonement. They can't. Because you see, there is no lone idea, no lone school of thought, no, no lone particular definition that in and of itself can tell us everything that was done on the cross of Jesus Christ. It takes what feeble attempts we have to explain through simile and metaphor and definition, plus much more to try and even begin to grasp the meaning of the crucifixion of our Lord. As Alan Walker, that Australian theologian, says, the cross of Jesus Christ is a many-sided cross. And we must look at it from all of these perspectives that have developed through 2,000 years of history and of thought, if ever we are to try and get even a small glimpse of what happened on the cross. And even though we would study until the last minute of our lives, ladies and gentlemen, we still would not fully understand it. But thank God we don't have to understand it to believe it. The cross is there not only as perhaps an enigma, something that cannot be defined, but it is there also to tell us about something that has happened in history, and even though we cannot understand it or explain it or completely interpret it to another or to ourselves, we can believe it. It is there to tell us that man is lost today, not because he's a sinner. That situation has been justified, but because he refuses to believe that on the cross his sin has been forgiven. The cross is the sign of the salvation which God, and it's an act of God, has wrought for us through Jesus Christ. Secondly, it, the cross is significant because it is a sign of what we call sanctification, our sanctification. We have tried to show that the cross first is a, a sign of salvation which shows really that our status in life as sinners is changed because what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we no longer have the status of being a sinner, but rather we are one who has been redeemed through the blood, the sacrifice, the moral influence, the substitute of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. The cross is there also to remind us not only is our status in life changed, but also that our state of life is to change. It is there to remind us that if we believe in the salvation that God has wrought for us in Jesus Christ, we no longer are the same people. That we have died with Christ. The old man, the old self-centered ego, this is to die. And we are not only individuals who have been redeemed from our sin, but we are people who are to be dead to sin. 
Now, many people forget this aspect of the cross. We like to claim the forgiveness which God has granted to us, but we are not always as anxious to claim that we are people because what Christ has done for us who are to be dead to sin. People who are to be new people. You see, because we die with the Lord, we also are alive with the resurrected Lord. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we are new people. We say we are born anew. We have new motivation, new goals, new desires, and a new king in our lives. No longer self, but God. We are to put off the old things. The old man is dead. We are new men in Christ. That's not easily done. What we call the process of becoming holier men and women and young people is sanctification. And sanctification is not an instant process. Many people think that as soon as they claim the salvation of God, immediately they become a saint. That's not true. Sanctification is hard. It is difficult. It requires discipline and concentration and deliberate attempts on the part of men and women and young people to live a new life in the light of the cross. As Karl Barth says, really none of us ever becomes completely Christian. In life, we are only becoming more Christian. And we shall, in the light of the cross, continue to grow and to be sanctified, becoming more holy, more sanctified, better people every day until at last we shall meet him and be like him and be known even now as we are known. But it's tough, very difficult. And as a matter of fact, we cannot do it on our own. And it is the power of the crucified, risen Lord working in this world today. That's the only way that we can do it. We cannot do it by our human, human effort or might, only as God's Holy Spirit working in us and through us can we find the direction, the guide, the help, the power to overcome this temptation. That's the only way. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, our symbol is not a crucifix, but it's a cross. The body of our Lord is not still upon that symbol. For he was dead and resurrected, and he is alive in the world today by that same spirit that resided in his body. It's in this world in what we call the Holy Spirit. And it's working here, and it's working in us. It's working, I think, this very moment, right now. And it is what enables us to become people who grow in sanctification. And it's the cross that reminds us we are new people and we are to grow accordingly. Not only 
salvation. Not only sanctification, but it is also the sign of service. That's right. And this is one of the things which we evangelical Christians so often forget and have so slighted in bringing forth the total message of the cross. For Jesus, when he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. And he said, let him take up his cross. But he did not say, take up your cross and just be thankful for the salvation which I have given unto you. He did not say, take up your cross and just spend the rest of your life trying to become a holy and better person. He said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what that cross is to tell us, that we are to become imitators of Jesus Christ. We are to become like him in all ways, even under the death of the cross. People who by our service to our Lord and to our fellow man must even come to the place where we are willing to lay down our lives and die for the cause of Christ. You see, sometimes we have forgotten to include that great imperative of the cross. We thought maybe it'd be too hard on people to take, frighten them and scare them out of the kingdom. But when you don't preach the service aspect and significance of the cross, you don't preach the whole cross. And maybe that's one of the reasons why the church is having such a difficult time getting people to understand what it is that we are trying to do here in life. For Jesus said, when I am lifted up, and that is to show the type of death that he was to die, when I am lifted up, and people see the cross, in other words, I will draw all men unto me. You see, it's not the magnetism or the power or the perhaps ability that a preacher has or a teacher or a program. It is Christ who draws all men, women, children, and young people, everyone, unto him. And what we are to do is to lift him up, to try and show people the cross in all of its significance and power and glory. And when we do this and show people salvation and sanctification and service, he will draw all men unto him. Ladies and gentlemen, that is why I am preaching this sermon today. And believe me, I feel power in this pulpit today. I am preaching it because I believe we must more and more and more preach the cross in all of its power and glory and demand. And as providence would have it, our young people are under a program of discipline during this Lent 
based upon the teachings of the cross and being bearers of the cross. And in this horrible weather this morning at 9.30, it was my privilege, together with that of Mr. Wiley's, to serve communion to about 48 of our senior highs who made the effort, felt the supreme effort needed to come out on a morning like this to gather around the table of the Lord. The program began this morning, and each one of them, I understand, was given a little cross that they are to carry in their pocket, in their pocketbook, simply to remind them the meaning and the significance of the cross. This is what we must do in life, for this is what Jesus did. He lifted up the cross and he drew all men unto him. I don't know exactly how it works, but it works. And that's the way God planned it through Christ. And you'll remember in our scripture lesson of today, Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, glorify thy name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I really believe that whenever we lift up the meaning of the cross, as we've tried to do today, God is glorifying his own name through this service. Yet just as on that day, some of you in hearing this will merely say, as they said that day, it's thundering. And you hear only words and emotion and feeling, and that's all. Others of you will get a little glimpse and say, it's an angel. It's an angel which has spoken to him. But some of you, I hope and I pray as I prayed in my study this morning, 